Good morning. Proverbs 18.24 says, There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Our speaker this morning is Drew Baker. I never had any brothers growing up, but God gave me Drew as my roommate for three years in college, and he's one of the finest friends that I have. He and Linda live up in Mason, Ohio. Drew is an anchor on the faculty and has been there for a number of years cultivating faithfulness at Cincinnati Christian Hills Academy. He's preached here before. He's here this morning. Will you welcome with me Drew Baker to serve our Lord in preaching the Word of God. I was sitting down here, and I have a confession to make. When I first got into this preaching business, uh, one of the things that I would do is I would sit and wait my turn. You know, I, all this, I thought, I'm just in a queue. I'm just in a line. Until I was at a conference, and there was a guy that spoke. His name was Richard Allen Farmer. And Richard Allen Farmer is a concert pianist who has become uh, involved in worship and things like that. And he rebuked those of us that speak for waiting our turns and said, you need to be worshiping as this unfolds. Thank you, Jay, for allowing us to worship and for bringing us into this marvelous moment. So thank you so much and your worship team. What a, I, I think you applauded teachers once. Can we applaud the worship team for the excellence that they do? So thank you so much for bringing us into this moment and this time. As your pastor mentioned in the introduction, he and I were college roommates. We had two businesses when we were in college. The first one made no money. It just was an investment in ourselves, and I'll tell you about that in just a moment. The other one was uh, called E&D Bike Storage, Eric and Drew Bike Storage. And my mother, who was a professor at Cedarville, uh, she lived close to the campus, and she had a garage, and she did not use her garage. And so Eric and I went in, we kind of made a little bit more space. And what we would do is we would charge college students $5 and we would take their bikes to my mom's house, park them in the garage and keep them there until winter has passed and spring comes. Or we would keep them until the end of the summer and they would come at the fall and do that. So that was our one business. We made money with that. The other business that we had was more like a ministry and not really a business. And that was we would uh, drive from Cedarville to Cincinnati Airport and pick up chapel speakers. And uh, Dr. Dixon, his secretary, Mrs. Gidley, I'm sorry, administrative assistant, she would uh, send us a note through intercampus mail, and it would say, do you want to pick up, and it would list the names of the speakers. Do you want to pick up uh, Pat Williams, who's the general manager, general manager of the 76ers at that time? Do you want to pick him up? Do you want to pick up Wendell Kempton? who was the president of ABWE. Do you want to pick up uh, John White from Grand Rapids? Do you want to pick up Wilbur Welsh from Grand Rapids College and Seminary? Do you want to pick up George Gardner from Christian Tabernacle? And on and on. And uh, one time, obviously, we also picked up Dr. Wearsby several times and brought him from the airport to Cedarville. One time, we're driving in the car with one of the speakers. I'm, I don't remember which one, but we're driving through all of the orange barrels that seem to populate Cincinnati. And he looked at us and he said, you know, this is going to be a beautiful city if they ever finish it, right? 
because everywhere we went, it seemed to be an orange barrel. And even this summer, as you make your way around, there's always something that seems to impede your progress or slow your progress. I'm trying to get from this point to the next point. I have to be there. I have to get going. And I'm doing good things, but all of a sudden there seems to be this roadblock or this thing that gets in front of you. The marvelous thing about being a believer and those that walk with Christ when we are in service for him, those roadblocks come, but there are ways around them. There are ways over them. There are ways to conquer them. Uh, this idea that we're talking about today is opposition that comes from doing, from action. Uh, you heard the scripture that was read. They were building the walls, and Samballat and Tobiah, they were upset about the action, the activity. Eric mentioned I teach school. This is I'm starting my 24th year at Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy, and my wife is starting her 18th year teaching kindergarten. I'm at the high school. And it, it's always puzzling. I get these emails, or someone from the office will say, so-and-so needs you to call them, and I will call a parent, and they'll want to come and meet with me. And it's usually because the grade that their child has received and earned is not what they think it should be. And it's amazing how when you open your grade book and begin to show to them, well, they didn't do this, they didn't do that, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. It becomes fairly apparent as to why that child has the grade they have. I'm not talking about that today. I'm not talking about people who do nothing. I'm not talking about those of you that might have failing grades because you've done nothing. I'm talking about you who meet roadblocks because you're at it, you're doing it, you're working for the name of Christ. So this morning, if you open your Bible, so Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we'll see how to prepare for the roadblocks of life, the roadblocks to service, the roadblocks that are in store for you, the roadblocks that are there in front of you. In Nehemiah chapter 4, we have Nehemiah who is following the thrilling and excellent Bible ministry of Ezra, and he is building upon that. Ezra taught the word of God, saw wonderful spiritual advancement. And now Nehemiah is building on the work of Ezra. He's not going backwards. He's going forward. He doesn't diminish Ezra. He builds upon Ezra, and he's moving forward in what he's doing. And the book of Nehemiah is a very personal account. It's filled with some really frank comments that make for this lively dialogue between individuals, but also shed light to us as believers on how to minister and serve in spite of the things that come before us. So this morning, if you have your Bibles open, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. The first principle in handling the roadblocks of life is to remember that criticism is inevitable. Criticism is inevitable. It's interesting how it is worded. It says Sanballat heard that they were building. So the activity of the building or the information of the spies somehow creates this image in Sanballat's mind that what is happening, I need to destruct it, destroy it. I need to do something to it. Uh, something is going on here. He heard it. He was aware of it. And notice how he responds. He was angry. He was greatly enraged. He, he burned with anger. 
if you remember Jonah, Jonah was sent to Nineveh, and uh, he was to preach the message of judgment and uh, tell them that if they don't repent, they would be destroyed. He preaches the message of judgment, and then he goes up on the hill, and do you remember what he was waiting to have happen? The city to be destroyed. And when it wasn't destroyed, he had this exact same response. He burned with anger. So it's that same idea. It, he is annoyed. He's vexed. He's greatly irritated, Sanballat is. And he derided the Jews. Uh, that image, perhaps you can think of, remember Job and his friends that came to counsel him? Job says, listen, I'm going to tell you my story and go ahead and mock me again. That's the same idea here. Sanballat is mocking the Jews. He's jeering them, criticizing what they're doing. Please note, you need to remember that criticism is inevitable. It is not some self-fulfilling prophecy. So as you begin to do your service for God, you're not saying, and I know this is going to be a failure and this is going to be horrible. That's not what this is about. Because do you notice who's doing the criticizing? It's not Nehemiah. Nehemiah isn't creating this. Perhaps we need to make sure that if this doesn't work, you all understand that, you know, I tried my, it's not like that at all. Instead, Nehemiah is full go building the walls and Sanballat is the one that comes along and criticizes. When you do work for God, it is inevitable that someone's going to say you have missed a step somewhere in your life story and need to rethink what it is that you're doing. Criticism is inevitable. Uh, Nehemiah is the target, but it is his work that Sanballat wants to destroy. It's what he is doing that gets destroyed. Why do your critics get so upset? Well, there are several reasons for that. Notice what happens here. The threat to Sanballat is great here. Because if Jerusalem is successful in rebuilding the walls, then what this will do is it will create another stop on the trade routes through to Samaria. And so perhaps Sanballat and his good folks will lose some of the profit that they could have had. So it's a threat to his own success. Also, if you, you think about why he's angry, it's a status thing. Do you remember Nehemiah was a cupbearer? He was a cupbearer in the kingdom, and he has now been commissioned by the king to go and do this project. Now, a cupbearer was an important position, but it wasn't an elevated position. Whereas then you have Sanballat, and he is a regional governor under the Persian king. And so you've got a cupbearer versus the warrior governor. And so if this Nehemiah, the cupbearer, is successful, all of a sudden it doesn't look so great for Sanballat, the warrior governor. And so the target of this criticism comes because it's a threat, because it is a loss of status, perhaps, for Sam Ballad. But also, Sam Ballad is afraid of change. The status quo has been exile, and now that has been changed. You see, when you do work for God, something has to change. Whether it's you or those around you, whatever it is, something has to change. And the critics come after you whenever it changes the status quo. We love status quo, don't we? We love to be able to have the rhythm of life. Sanballat comes along and his life is rhythm. And here comes Nehemiah and his rhythm gets interrupted and change happens. Uh, notice the building of the wall prompted the opposition. The ridicule escalates from saying Nehemiah's plan was a pipe dream to this extreme anger and desperation that Nehemiah may succeed. 
there is an intensity of criticism. Criticism is inevitable when you're serving and doing something for God. Now think about in uh, the life of Jesus. When Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, remember the lady that walks in with the alabaster box? Do you remember what she did with it? She did not go into the corner and sit quietly. Instead, she walked in and she broke it open and poured it over the feet of Jesus and the smell of it permeated the whole house. And that action, do you remember the disciples' response? It should have been, praise the Lord, we agree, this guy deserves this. Instead it was, you know, we could have sold that for a lot of money and we could have given it to the poor. And Jesus rebuked them. Criticism comes when you do things for God. Criticism is inevitable, as we read and find here. The woman with the alabaster box was doing something sacrificial and in praise of the Lord, and she was criticized. Criticism comes when you are in action. Some of you may be sitting there and saying, you know, nobody's criticizing me for anything. So are you concluding you're doing nothing to be criticized for? You say, well, you don't understand. You know, sometimes I get criticized at work. And then as we dig deeper, we find out it's because you're showing up late. It's because you're a complainer by the water cooler. It's because you uh, are calling off all the time. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about as a result of taking a stand and saying, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Critics, critics, they start coming from all angles and start to criticize what you're doing. Your pastor and I played basketball together at Cedarville. And one of the things that we had to do as a team is we would go into a room uh, at the start of whatever game we were going to be playing. Uh, in this situation, it was the, we were playing Rio Grande College. And we would sit and we would listen to the scouting report. And the scouting report would say, okay, here's this player. And I remember this one player in particular. They said, don't guard him. Don't worry about him. He does nothing. He does nothing. He must be the school's president's son. That's why he's playing, because he does nothing. So don't worry about him. Don't even, you know, shade off. But instead, let him go and double team in the post. That's what happens, right? If you're doing nothing, no one is paying attention. You say, well, I'm doing something, but nobody's criticizing me. So perhaps... Are you the critic? Perhaps you're the, the critic, as Sam Ballot shows here in verse 2 of Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 2. He said, in the presence of his brothers and the army of the Samaritans, in this very public way, Sam Ballot could have negotiated a peace. He could have negotiated some kind of agreement, but instead he's looking to criticize and to tear down. And that's what critics do. Are, are you a critic? Are you the guy that stands in the back and says, you know, what are those feeble Jews doing? That's what Sanibal was doing. Standing in the back and jeering, calling them feeble. Uh, the word feeble means hopeless. Uh, the word feeble means the withering, the powerless. He's saying, look at these weak, frail Jews and what they're trying to do. Are you that critic? Is that why no one's criticizing you? Because you are in that spot? Or perhaps it's like, uh, Sam Ballot, he says, will they restore for it? Uh, will they restore it for themselves? 
Do they think that with their poor resources they can rebuild the wall? And notice then he hits them kind of in their personal side. He says, will they sacrifice? It's as though Sambalat is saying, are, are they going to pray up the walls? Is that what's going to happen? Sometimes the reason why we are not hearing criticism is because we're the critic or we're doing nothing. Criticism is happening here. Notice what else Sanballat says. Will they finish in a day? Have they not counted the cost? Are they think they can do this in such a short time? Again, questioning their abilities, questioning their efforts, questioning what they're doing. Notice how he concludes it. He says this, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? This is an exaggeration. He's saying, you know, are they going to use this rubble to rebuild? He says the Jews are way too optimistic. When's the last time someone criticized you for that? For being too optimistic. Criticism. It is an inevitable part of serving God. Notice what else happens in verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. Another regional governor of the Persian king. He's there criticizing as well. Critics love company, don't they? Critics love somebody to be with them. They love someone to stand alongside and do this. That's right. That's right. Sanballat and Tobiah are criticizing. Notice Tobiah even gets in on it. He says what? He says, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. This wall is so fragile that a 10 to 13 pound fox will run across it and break it down. That's what he's saying. He's truly mocking Israel, truly criticizing them, criticizing the poor workmanship, criticizing the poor planning, criticizing, criticizing. Uh, notice, too, Tobiah and Samballot make a mistake. In verse uh, 3, they say, their stone wall. Did you catch that? They did not realize it's not their stone wall. You know whose stone wall it is? It's God's stone wall. Uh, Nehemiah is building this because God wants this done. Nehemiah is doing this because serving God and building God's wall is what he's supposed to be doing. And so they make a grave mistake by saying their wall, not realizing it's God's wall. And so the criticism is not just individual on the person, but it is a criticism of God and what he's doing. And when you are serving God, when you are doing what God wants you to do, criticism is inevitable. Please notice the second way to be prepared when criticism and roadblocks come. Number two in verse four, he says in verse four of Nehemiah chapter four, verse four, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of their builders. The second response is to remember prayer is invaluable criticism is inevitable prayer is invaluable nehemiah remember nehemiah 
is a strong man of action. He is a strong man of doing. He is a strong man of saying, let's build the walls, and that's what they were doing. And even this strong man of action hits the pause button and says, hear, O oh our God, hear, O oh our God. Even that man of action, he takes a moment to pray, to pray. Nehemiah is a doer. He served as a cupbearer. He served as the leader of the building wall. And now he stops to pray. So please understand that in your action, part of that action needs to be, hear me, O Lord. Hear me, O Lord, because I need you. Because I need you. Because I have this all around me, and I need you to help me to, to get through this. Prayer right now is sometimes a neglected part of our lives, isn't it? Imagine if I would pray more than I criticize. Imagine if I spent more time in thought of what God wants and his plan instead of my plan and my purpose. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He says, uh, he prays to God, and this is a prayer of vindication. Nehemiah is not saying me, he's saying we. He's not saying mine, he's saying yours. It's your wall, God. It's your people, God. Please, please come to our aid. Prayer is invaluable when these things happen. I am a doer, you say. I'm a man of action. I understand that. But even men of action take time to pray. And the reason they take time to pray is because they can't do everything. Uh, think about Jesus with his interaction with uh, Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus. Lazarus dies. Jesus goes. Jesus wept. Jesus goes to um, the tomb, and the ladies say, don't go, he stinks, it's been that long. And Jesus, when he goes, do you remember the sequence? He says to the men, roll the stone away. Wait a minute. Jesus could have done this, right, to roll the stone away. But he lets us do what we can do. You can roll the stone away. And then what does Jesus do? He says, Lazarus, come forth. How many of us can do that? None of us. That's what Jesus can do. God can resurrect the dead, and that's what he did. I love the fact that he says Lazarus, because if he would have just said come forth, he would have emptied the place, right? But he says Lazarus, come forth. And then, how does it end? He says to the men, unwrap his clothes. What you can do, roll away the stone. What you can do, take off his grave clothes, what God can do is resurrect the dead. You need to do what you do, but you also need to have God and uh, allow him to do what he does. And the way we do that is by praying, by talking to him, by understanding his plan, his purpose, and what it is that he wants from us. Uh, the word of God is clear that without him we can do nothing. And so we need to have him as our center point through prayer. When you are doing God's work, you are able to put it in God's hand and let God do it. 
I watched you all as you uh, recognized teachers, homeschoolers, public school teachers, private school, you recognized folks. I saw that service. And it was a, a marvelous reminder to me that ministry is different when you are a follower of Christ. The circumstance or the place, that's, that's different as well, but they're neutral. It's what you do as the person in those places, the difference that you make as a follower of Christ. And prayer is one of the things that we can do as followers of Christ as we teach, as we work with our students. Uh, prayer is the thing that keeps us from just being philanthropists, right? Just do-gooders. Prayer makes us agents of God. Prayer makes us those people who are implementing what it is that God can do. We are bringing light and hope as a result of our relationship. So when we are working, prayer is a very important part of that. Did you notice the prayer? Notice what happens when Nehemiah prays. He says, turn their taunt on their heads. In essence, he's saying, bring on them what they wish for us. That's failure. And then he says, give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. So he's saying, let them experience exile. Let them experience what it's like to be to be plundered, to have things taken from you by force. Let them experience failure. Let them experience captivity. <laughs> You're like, whoa, Nehemiah, can you, can you ease back just a little bit? That's, that's fairly intense. The reason it's intense is because of his relationship with God, because he has truly understood that this is a work of God that involves God needing to do something because he's done everything he can do. So the intensity is real. Look at verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 4. In verse 5 he says this, he says, Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sins be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This is rich, wonderful Old Testament language, isn't it? This is about atonement. This is about the covering of sin. And so in essence, what Nehemiah is praying is, don't allow their sins to be forgiven. Nehemiah is not messing around. He's praying to God because God himself, his honor is being impugned. God himself, his honor is being opposed. God himself, his work is being challenged. So Nehemiah kind of brings this up a notch. This Old Testament praying is not new. We go back to our earlier example of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 2, he has so many psalm references when he is in the belly of the fish. He has so many psalm references, and, and so he prays that. I love the psalms because they say what I can't say. I'm hopeful that you take time to be in the psalms and that they are part of your prayer life. I hope that you understand the Old Testament and the things that God is teaching us so that we understand the greatness and the brilliance and the opportunity of God. Prayer is invaluable. We can look to God for vindication. We can look to God not for a moment, but for multiple moments that allow us to rise above the world's low estimation of us. When we are clinging to and seeing our God, what is being said gets farther and farther away from us. I've been in Christian education for 24 years, like I said earlier. So 
as you know, I'm a very wealthy man because of that. I was lectured very sternly by a relative, you need to get out of that business because you're not going to make any money. That was 25 years ago when I was thinking of doing that. And I still remember that lecture. My mother, who has been a lifetime teacher, she uh, not only taught elementary school, but she also taught at Cedarville College. And my mother said to me, she said, it will never be about the money. There are days when I wish it were, but I got to tell you, I understand that. That's what prayer does. It changes it. For example, there was a student in my class, and uh, one of the questions on the test was, um, what important event happened in 1066? And that's the Battle of Hastings. Well, this student wrote Mr. Baker's birthday. <laughs> on Sunday, I hugged that same student, and I said, thank you so much for your service to the Lord in this church that we attend together. I also had the experience of coaching youth football, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. My son, I coached him, and there was one young man, and that's one of the reasons I don't coach anymore. I mean, this guy drove me crazy. I mean, he was into everything. You, you name whatever you name kids do, he did wrong. I was in UDF, I was getting something to drink, and as I came through the aisle, I ran into this guy's dad. I said, hey, how's it going? <laughs> I said, how's your son? He said, well, you know that he had some rough spots. He said, but now he's married, and he's working, and he's serving the Lord in this area. That's why we teach. That's why we serve the Lord. Doesn't happen often doesn't happen a lot in this world, but in the next, we'll hear from him. The reason we pray, the reason we do what we do in service for the Lord is so that we can experience his rewards. The roadblocks are overcome when we realize that criticism is inevitable, prayer is invaluable, and verse 6, it says this, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. The third way to overcome the roadblocks is when we realize that persistence is imperative. Persistence is imperative. So criticism is inevitable. Prayer is invaluable. Persistence is imperative. The work went on in spite of the insults. The words of Sanballat stung. They hurt, but they produced not one quiver of indecision from Nehemiah and the Jews. Instead, they worked on, they produced, and did what they were supposed to do. They did not mope over the difficulties. They did not find fault with each other. They did not form a gossip group or a committee to look into the problems. Instead, they concentrated on doing what God had called them to do. There was no victim shaming or victim owning. I'm a victim. I can't do this. Look at what Sam Ballot's doing to me. I am a victim. My wife and I had the privilege of traveling with a group of teachers from our school to Israel. And when we were in Israel, we met two different men in ministry. And uh, both of those men, in their talks about being Jews and about following Christ, said, we have decided not to be victims. And that's what is happening here. 
Nehemiah and the Jews said, we will not be victims. Poor us. No, they don't do that. Instead, they work. They do. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The people had a mind to work. Not to give too much credit to Nehemiah, but one of the reasons they had a mind to work is because Nehemiah was in this. He wasn't going anywhere. I, I, I learned a lesson the first time I came here to speak. The first time I came here to speak, I didn't say anything about your pastor. So the second time I came and spoke, I said something about your pastor, and a couple of people were like, That's, that, we like that, we like that. So can I tell you another Pastor Eric Mount story? Like I said, Eric and I were roommates, and we did everything together. We played basketball, we hung out, we, we were always together. And when we would travel to games, we would eat together. Of course, the other players were around too, but we were always together. First time we traveled to Malone, they had an All-American named Tom Valarich. And we were traveling, and I don't think they have these anymore, but do you remember Ponderosa? Ponderosa restaurants? That's, that was like Coach Callen's go-to place. So we would go there, and I remember they had like the salad bar, and this was my first time traveling with the team, and I, I got the steak and the right everything, and then all of a sudden I see Eric, and he's at the salad bar, and he's spearing onions and putting them in his salad. And I'm not talking like onion bits. I'm talking rings of onions, and he's piling them into his salad. I don't know about you, but I... I before a game and all I just can't imagine eating onions and so we sat down and Eric is cutting into a salad and he begins to eat it and I said onions really before a game and he goes bake I'm going to get right up in Valarge's face and I'm going to breathe on him and he is not going to be able to do this and it was that kind of relentless energy that he brought with everything that he did and that night Tom Valarich not only suffered the the fate of us on top of him physically but also odorously (laughs) but that's the kind of relentlessness that inspires others right and that's what nehemiah has he has this relentlessness and as a result the people had a mind to work the enemies appear small and shrill when dwarfed by what it is that god wants you to do Unity, faith, energy to do the work. All of a sudden, we don't hear the critics like we did because we're at the work. We are doing our jobs. We are playing purposefully at what it is that God wants us to do. It is inevitable that you will be criticized. Prayer is invaluable to get you through it, and it is your persistence that is imperative. Do not stop the work. I was walking through the halls at school on Tuesday, and one of my students from last year was standing there like this with her foot. And as I got closer, I saw that blood was coming out of her heel. And I said, oh, Alex, I said, what happened? And she said, I got spiked in the soccer game, and so it's now bleeding again. And I said to her, I said, well, you know how you can keep from getting spiked in the game and she looked at me and I said you could sit on the bench all the time and she looked at me and she goes there's no way I'm sitting on the bench ever again 
She says, I'm a starter, and I'm going to keep starting. That's the attitude, isn't it? Get off the sidelines, friends. Get into the work and the ministry that God has called us to do. You say, well, I just don't know what it is that I can do. I can tell you this. You can look to Jesus Christ. I mean, think about Jesus and what he did for us. Jesus, who experienced the inevitable criticism. Who is he? Eating with publicans and sinners? Who is he? Meeting with Zacchaeus? Who is he? Criticized for his ministry. And think about, what did Jesus do? How many times do we hear about him getting up early in the morning to pray? How many times do we hear about Jesus who understands that prayer was inevitable? If Jesus needs prayer, how much more do I need to pray? And please notice as well his persistence. His persistence. Do you remember what he said on the cross? It is finished. He went all the way to where he needed to go. So this morning, all you need is Christ to get you to where you want to be in serving the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the marvelous gift of your word. And we ask that we would be able to engage our hearts and our minds in service for you. We love you, Lord. And we ask that you would point us with your word to your son so we understand that Christ is who we need. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.